0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Played for moonshotters in New Straits. Fill up Buckeye lake of sacred for trunks. For sailors in Port Clinton, I'm saying for my lunch. Through the hockey Hills of Logan, a plate for love and hunger's sake. Singing somewhere in Ohio, from the river to the lake. great sandusky bay from the cornfields down near yellow springs to the depths of seven caves between lebanon and barnsville i'm somewhere on the bait singing somewhere in ohio from
1: the river to the lake hello listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of ohio song by logan singer-songwriter casey redmond casey's our featured ohio musical artist tonight so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about him, where to see him perform, and let you hear the rest of that really fun song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon
2: Journal. Hi, everyone. You know, Casey really worked a lot of Ohio locations into that song. Makes me want to grab a map and look them all up. (laughs) Yeah. Steve, for the first time, I felt compelled to offer a warning to our audience. The case tonight is a particularly gruesome one. And while I made every effort not to be gratuitous, it's hard to tell the story without invoking some very disturbing images. Yeah. But look, if you can hang in there with us, we're going to play Casey's song at the end and it's going to lift everyone's spirits. So Steve, if I had you name the most famous serial killer of all time, who would come to mind?
1: Um, I guess it'd be Ted Bundy.
2: You know, I I would have to say it would be Jack the Ripper. I would I yeah. would think he, you know, There's a name for people around the globe who research him. They call themselves ripperologists. Yes. And they've had like over a century now of studying him. And, you know, there's also a very devoted core of amateurs who have long tried to figure out Cleveland's most infamous serial killer. Do you know who that is?
1: Well, I I would... Always go to the torso killer. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I would think so, too. Yeah, I don't think they have a name for themselves, these researchers, but they, you know, I would suggest torsoologists.
1: There you yeah, go. There you yeah. go. Uh, you know, when you say most Ohio's most famous, I mean, of course, we had the birth of Jeffrey Dahmer here in Ohio, but oh, he really yes. didn't do most of his killings here in Ohio. Right. But if you say Cleveland, I definitely going to torso.
2: Yeah. You know, a lot of people called him the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury-run You know, I I think the more common term, though, is the Cleveland Torso Murderer. Right. So this case was so similar to the Ripper. You know, you've got a knife-wielding monster prowling alone through the heart of the city, preying on the poor and disenfranchised, and then one day simply vanishing, his identity forever a mystery. And talk about gruesome. While he might have been responsible for more than 20 deaths, most students of this case— agree on 13 victims, every single one of them beheaded. And I don't know if you know this, Steve, but in almost all of the cases, the coroner determined the act of beheading was the cause of death. Ooh, I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he took their heads while they were still alive. Hmm. Most of the male victims were castrated. I do not know whether they were castrated while they were alive. In one case, the coroner Thought the victim had died while body parts were being amputated. Well, many of the torso murderers' victims uh, were cut into pieces, and then I mean, the entire city had to deal with this man because he would leave these pieces dumped in different locations, ranging from you know the Cuyahoga River to city bridges to the dump. And what makes this case even more interesting is that the guy in charge of the investigators was none other than Elliot Ness, the leader of the Untouchables, those famed uh, Prohibition lawmen who disassembled the Empire of Chicago gangster Al Capone. They brought Ness in to clean up a lot of corruption. A, A lot of public officials in Cleveland were being paid off. And they needed somebody who was untouchable gotcha. and that was Elliot Ness's reputation, so they brought him in to clean up house and Actually, this is a case where he kind of stayed on the fringes for quite a long time. you know he was head of the safety department, he was letting everybody else handle it, but there came a time when it got so bad you know the mayor said, "Get in there and solve this case," right. and then he got very involved. Now, when, like I said, when Cleveland's Mad Butcher was running wild, this was the 1930s, and Ness was the city's public safety director. That put him in charge of the police and fire departments. And when he arrived in Cleveland in 1934, his reputation preceded him. He was tall, handsome, soft spoken, 31 years old. He was nowhere near as famous as he's going to become, after that television show was created, The Untouchables, That that's the program that turned him into a national hero. But he wasn't unknown you know. in his time. He had proved himself to be resourceful, courageous, and incorruptible in fighting Al Capone. And like I said, those are the characteristics why Cleveland hired him to, to fight crime and corruption in their own city. Now, since we only do mysteries here... You can rightly assume that whatever successes Ness had in Cleveland, catching the Mad butcher is not going to be one of them. And it's a failure that's going to haunt him. And one suspect is going to taunt him until his dying day. So let's set the scene for this story. Kingsbury Run is a neighborhood on Cleveland's southeast side, running from the Flats to about East 90th Street and along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. The railroad came through here and supported a lot of that black smoke industry, oil refineries, iron and steel mills, and manufacturing plants. And like any heavy industrial area a century ago, It also became settled by working families who needed to be within walking distance of their employers. But Kingsbury Run was bound to the same fate as all neighborhoods built for such reasons. When the boom ends, what's left behind is a world of poverty, dense collections of mostly immigrants and minorities struggling to recover from the loss of the businesses that had lured them there in the first place. When the Great Depression hit... Kingsbury Run became a shanty town filled with squatters living on vacant plots and ramshackle structures, and hobos who stopped in while riding the rails. And, not surprisingly, with these kinds of conditions came almost unchecked crime and violence. It was truly dark, dreary, and dangerous. This became the Mad Butcher's Playground. He focused on people that were easy prey. Drifters, sex workers, and the working poor. He killed both men and women, black and white, from their early 20s into middle age. Ten of the 13 victims we're going to discuss today have never even been identified. He really didn't have a type. Officially, his reign of terror began on September 5, 1934. It was a gray, overcast day, and Frank Lagasse, a 21-year-old carpenter, was strolling along Euclid Beach when he saw something curious sticking up from the sand. He moved in closer, and to his horror, found the lower half of a woman neatly severed at the waist and at the knees. Cuyahoga County Coroner Arthur Pierce determined the victim had been dead about six months. News of her discovery brought forth a handyman from North Perry, that was some 30 miles east of Euclid Beach, who said he recently had buried some decomposing remains that might have been human. He led authorities to the burial site, and they unearthed what the coroner determined was the upper half of the same woman's torso. That wasn't the end of the strangeness. Coroner Pierce also learned both parts had been treated by a chemical that made the skin reddish and leathery. Almost like a preservative, I guess. Here's the thing about this victim. For years, despite so many similar deaths that are going to happen here shortly, police will insist on treating this woman as an isolated incident because she was miles from where the other killings happened. She was dubbed the Lady of the Lake, and has still left off some lists that put the Mad Butcher's official count at 12. Since the other 12 were already numbered in the official history of this case, those who recognize the Lady of the Lake as the killer's first victim have come to call her Victim Zero. Okay. An entire year would pass before another gruesome find. It was September 23, 1935 and 16-year-old James Wagner and 12-year-old Peter Castora were racing each other to the gully beneath a slope known as Jackass Hill in the Kingsbury-run neighborhood. There, in the overgrowth, they found the body of a man, naked but for a pair of black socks. He was missing his head and his genitals. There were obvious rope burns on his wrists, a sign that he had violently fought against his binds while he was still alive. Two policemen responded to the call, and while they rooted through thick brush looking for the man's head, they came across a second body just 30 feet from the first. It was in the same condition. The first body was fresh, maybe dead the past two to three days. The second body might have been dead a month, and though nobody would connect this one to the Lady of the Lake... The coroner found this body had also been treated chemically, showing the same redness and leathery texture. Further searching found the heads of both men. The coroner's analysis revealed something stunning about the bodies. Both men were alive when they had been decapitated. Both bodies had been drained of blood, and both had been thoroughly cleaned before being dumped at the foot of Jackass Hill. Fingerprints gave a name to the first victim. He was 28-year-old Edward Andresi, who lived on Fulton Road with his parents and younger brother. He had a modest police record and was known as a barroom brawler and a small-time gambler and swindler. His favorite hangout was the Third Precinct, an area known as the Roaring Third, as it was filled with bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. His parents, Joseph and Helen Andresy, identified him and shared with detectives a sad story of how their son had been a good kid, influenced by bad friends. He'd spent four years working as an orderly in a hospital's mental ward, and for a time was married to a nurse he'd met there. But the couple divorced. He never attempted to see the child his wife had borne him, and he quit his job and never bothered to find another. He left home the night of September 19 without saying where he was going and never returned. Police visited the places Andresy frequented and learned a lot about his lifestyle from those bad friends. Some said he was a ladies man and was even on the run from a husband who had vowed to kill him for sleeping with his wife. Many said he was gay, that he dealt in pornographic literature and acquired young males for older homosexuals who paid for the service. Clearly, he lived a high-risk life that would have made him the target of many potential killers. But months passed, and police were no closer to identifying who the killer might be or if he had any connection to the second man who was also found on Jackass Hill. We don't know anything about the second man, except that he was about 40 years old. Like so many in this story, he will never be identified. In Mad Butcher canon, He is simply called John Doe One. Four months after that bone-chilling double murder, on January 26, 1936, a barking dog was disturbing the quiet of people living along East 20th Street and Central Avenue. At 11 p.m., a woman, tired of the disturbance, finally bundled herself up and walked out into the bitter cold to see what was bothering the pooch. She found the dog in an alley, behind the Hart manufacturing plant, on a leash and straining toward a bushel basket that was resting against the wall. She looked in the basket and thought she'd discovered some hams. So she made her way to the end of the alley and found local butcher Charles Page to let him know some of his hams had been stolen. Page followed her to the basket, peered inside, and drew back in horror as he pulled out a human arm. Police arrived to find more body parts in the basket, some of them wrapped in newspapers from the previous day. Other body parts would be discovered 10 days later in a vacant lot off Orange Avenue. This is the second time police will have success identifying a victim through fingerprints. Her name was Florence Genevieve Polillo, a 41-year-old who paid the bills by waitressing, tending bar, and selling sex. She roomed at a house on Carnegie Avenue near East 32nd Street, right on the edge
1: of the Roaring Third. Well, no wonder they call him the butcher, because he seemed like very clean cuts, If she thought it was ham being, you know, stolen.
2: It seemed very appropriate, yeah, right. exactly. Hmm. I think early on, a lot of people are wondering if a person who had worked as a butcher was this killer right, because like of that. Right, the right. Exactly. Well, police learned Flo considered Ashtabula her hometown. She used several aliases and had been married and divorced twice. Her last husband was a postal worker from Buffalo, whom she deserted before moving to Cleveland. Her landlord said she was quiet and sociable enough. Her only bad habit was that when she drank, she became loud and quarrelsome. She remembered seeing Flo leave the apartment on January 24, two days before her remains were found. Again, the coroner determined she had been killed by decapitation. This time, the coroner explained that the clue was that her neck muscles were retracted, apparently something that wouldn't happen if you remove someone's head after death. Detective Sergeant James Hogan, head of Cleveland's Homicide Department, would not attribute this act to the killer behind the double homicide the previous summer. He thought he had different killers on his hand, and he was pretty stubborn about that view, even when the next victim was found. On June 5, 1936, two boys, ages 11 and 13, intended to go fishing as they took a shortcut through Kingsbury Run. Near the East 55th Street Bridge, they found a pair of pants rolled up in a ball and tucked beneath a willow bush. The boys wondered if they might find money in the pocket. They found a whole lot more. The trousers were wrapped around a man's severed head. The next day, a pair of railroad workers found the rest of him lying in front of the office of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police, almost as if mocking the railroad detectives who regularly patrolled Kingsbury Run. As with other victims, he was killed by decapitation and his body was cleaned before it was discarded. Unlike other victims, he was clean-shaven, well-nourished, and wore new clothes, which were found in the area of his naked body. What did it all mean? Detectives were beginning to wonder if the killer had befriended his victims, took them home, fed, clothed, and cleaned them, and then murdered them. History has labeled this latest victim, John Doe II but most will come to call him the Tattooed Man. He might have been as young as 20 years old, slender, handsome, perhaps 5'11 with reddish-brown hair. He also had six distinctive tattoos on his body, a dove and the names Helen and Paul on the inner side of his left forearm. On the right forearm, a heart and an anchor. On the outer side, the initials WCG. There was a butterfly on his left shoulder and two tattoos on his ankles. The head of the comic character Jiggs on the left and a Cupid on the right. There were so many clues to his identity. His undershorts bore a laundry mark with initials J.D. And because police found him pretty quickly after his death, they got a good set of fingerprints. The same summer he was found, Cleveland was hosting the Great Lakes Exposition, So the police made a plastered death mask of him and drew a tattoo chart. Then they put him on display at the expo, and attendees were asked to have a look in case someone could identify him. More than 100,000 people refused the display, but nobody could give him a name. By the way, his death mask and those of three other victims are on display today at the Cleveland Police Museum if you care to go have a look oh, for yourself. That's kind of cool. Yeah. On July 22, 1936 now, a 17-year-old girl was hiking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek. This is on the city's west side when she found the decomposing remains of a headless man. She had just found John Doe 3. It was the only victim found on the city's west side. The remains a few hundred yards from an abandoned hobo camp and the rail that had carried vagrants in and out. The body had been there about two months, but even after all that time, a pathologist accompanying the detectives determined that so much blood had seeped into the ground, it appeared the man had been beheaded on that very spot. Now, when all this is going on, the city clearly is recognizing what's happening, and it's making news frequently. But it was secondary to other exciting things going on. The city hosted the Republican National Convention that summer. And that Great Lakes Expo, that was a huge deal. And it welcomed diversion from the hard times. It provided thousands of jobs as workers built the sprawling exposition. And the event welcomed President Roosevelt to town in a well-publicized appearance. And when it came to crime... People were much more interested in the exploits of their handsome, famous crime fighter, Elliot Ness, who had just spent the last several months leading raids against gambling dens and other organized gang activity. At this point, Ness mostly was leaving the task of finding the Mad Butcher to his police detectives. Meanwhile, the Mad Butcher continued his work. On September 10, 1936, Jerry Harris, a vagrant from St. Louis, was leaning against a water tower at the East 37th Street Bridge, watching a slow-moving freight train moving toward him. He had come to town aboard a train several days earlier and was ready to leave. He timed the movement of the train, then ran for it, scrambling for one of the box cars, But he stumbled over something in his path. It was the upper half of a torso who had come to be known as John Doe Four. Harris postponed his departure, instead running to a local business and calling for police. Police searched and found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs in a nearby water feature, something that used to be a pool, but had become a stagnant open sewer. It said about 600 people came to watch the diver who was sent into the putrid water to recover the body parts. This victim had been dead just a couple of days. His age estimated to be anywhere from his late 20s to about 40 years old.
1: So I was going to have a question about how big news was this in Cleveland, but obviously if 600 people showed up, this is getting around.
2: Yeah, it's going to get bigger because okay. right about this time is when the newspapers are going to start calling him the torso murderer, okay. and he's going to start becoming kind of a legend in his own time. Now, with the body parts that they had recovered out of that pool, there was some clothing near the body, and there was a promising clue uh, in a hat with a label that led detectives to a shop in Bellevue, Ohio. That was 60 miles west of Cleveland. A woman in Bellevue remembered giving that hat to a young hobo who had appeared at her door two weeks earlier, but the tip did not lead to a name. But like I said, the killer was getting a name. The torso murderer, the mad butcher, the horrible headhunter, some called him the Phantom of Kingsbury Run. Now, it's not that the murders had gone unnoticed until now, they all made headlines, but the public event of watching the body parts recovered from that pool seemed to take the story to a whole new level. Tension in the city turned up a notch. Railroad employees began working in teams and arming themselves. There was a mass exodus of hobos fearing for their lives. Police patrols were intensified. With 1936 ending with six brutal killings in one year, Mayor Harold Burton told Elliot Ness it was time for him to play a more active role in figuring this one out. They started holding regular meetings of representatives from various city departments to share information and analyze evidence in the case. Newspapers called it the Torso Clinic. Meanwhile, detectives Peter Merillot and Martin Zalewski were put on the case full-time. Among their activities, going undercover, dressing like transients, riding the rails, and spending more time patrolling Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third. 1936 also brought local elections and a change in coroners. Coroner Pierce was voted out, replaced by Sam Gerber, a young up-and-comer who seemed to be on top of new technology and had dual degrees in both medicine and law. Coroner Gerber took office in 1937, Just in time for some brand new murders. On February 23, the remains of a third female were discovered. The upper half of her torso was found on Euclid Beach on the Lake Erie shore, almost the exact spot where the Lady of the Lake had been discovered three years earlier. This new victim appeared to be in her mid 20s. Now, at this time, Lady of the Lake was still being treated as a separate homicide. And the second woman ever found had a name. That was Florence Pallillo. So this new victim became Jane Doe One. The lower half of her torso, by the way, would wash ashore three months later. Now let me go through the rest of these victims rather quickly because, unfortunately, it's more of the same. On June 6, 1937, a teenage boy discovered the remains of Jane Doe II, the only known black victim. She was about 40 years old. She was beneath the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. All that was recovered were bones, leading the coroner to determine she had been killed at least a year earlier. Her skull was in the open. The rest of her body was in a burlap bag. A man stepped forward, saying he believed the woman was his mother. Rose Wallace had gone missing ten months earlier. But Rose Wallace's dentist was dead, and his records were gone, so there was no way to ever confirm her identity beyond doubt. The next month, on July 6, 1937, John Doe Five was found. It happened after the National Guard had been called to Cleveland to maintain order during some labor dispute. A young guardsman standing watched by the West 3rd Street Bridge saw a tugboat pass by, and in its wake, bobbing in the water, was a body part. Over the next week, police would pull everything but the head out of the Cuyahoga River. This one was different from the rest. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart ripped out. The coroner determined he had been killed just a couple of days earlier and wondered if the killer was changing his M.O., there was a welcome reprieve from all of this horror for about nine months, but on April 8, 1938, it was back to business for the Mad Butcher. A young laborer on his way to work saw what he thought was a dead fish on the banks of the Cuyahoga River in the flats. It turned out to be the lower half of a woman's leg, the tenth official victim of the Mad Butcher, this one called Jane Doe Three. She was discovered in pieces over the next month, some of her floating in the river in burlap bags. She was unique in that she was the only victim found to have drugs in her system. The coroner couldn't tell if she was an addict or if the drugs were something employed by her attacker. The clue would have come in her arms, but those were never recovered. The last two bodies were found together, just as the first two bodies had been discovered the same day. These final victims were Jane Doe four and john doe six it was august 16 1938 and three scrap collectors rooting through the lakeshore dump on east 9th street found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and then again in a quilt her legs arms and head were found in a homemade box wrapped in butcher paper the coroner came to believe some of the parts might have been refrigerated for a time When police arrived to collect this victim, they found the other, just a few yards away. It appeared both had been dead for several months. This location of these final two bodies were within sight of Elliot Ness's office window, leaving some to wonder if that was a deliberate act to taunt Ness. Just two days after those last two victims were found, Elliot Ness, in his role as Cleveland Safety Director, carried out a planned raid on Kingsbury Run. It was just after midnight on August 18, 1938. He put together a team of 35 police officers and 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks. Their target was a large cluster of makeshift shacks where the Kaga River meanders behind Public Square. Some reports said they took 63 men into custody. Other reports said they evicted some 300 squatters. When the sun came up, they searched the shanties for clues, hoping to find the butcher's workspace. They found nothing of significance and ended the day by burning 100 dwellings to the ground. That act didn't win Ness any friends. Depriving so many people of their homes, even if they were just shanties, shook the conscience of Depression-era Clevelanders. So let's talk suspects, because while lots and lots of people were brought in for questioning, only one was ever arrested with preparations for a trial. On August 24, 1939, a year after the murders had stopped, Cuyahoga County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell's office picked up a man. Now you're supposed to say, Sheriff, what's the sheriff got to do with this?
1: What does the sheriff have (laughs) to do with this?
2: Okay. Well, this is an interesting side story here because until now, the sheriff's department didn't want anything to do with the case. Even when they were asked for help, they would insist it was Cleveland's affair. But after a second body was discovered on Euclid Beach, which was a countywide attraction, there was increasing pressure for the county to join the hunt. And so finding the mad butcher became a sort of competition between the sheriff's office and the city detectives. The sheriff investigators were the first to learn that three of the victims, Edward Anderson, Flo Palillo, and Rose Wallace, were frequent patrons of the same tavern oh. at the corner of East 20th and Central. That's yeah. interesting. You know, it made you wonder was that? Was the mad butcher finding his victims here? You know, the Ripper um, got a lot of his victims at the same taverns. Right. So, you know, it's a hunting ground. Well, the sheriff's men went undercover. They chatted with patrons and eventually picked up vibes about a man named Frank Dolezal. He was a 52-year-old bricklayer who once worked in a slaughterhouse. Dolezal, as it turned out, had lived for a time with Flo Palillo and had spent time with Edward Anderson Rose Wallace. Some told the detectives they also saw him in the company of a tattooed sailor, and that Dolezal engaged in homosexual activities after inviting vagrants to his apartment. Now, when the sheriff's men realized Cleveland detectives were starting to sniff around the same tavern, they rushed in to make an arrest before those city boys could steal the show. They searched Dolizal's apartment and reported finding four butcher knives, two of which appeared to have blood stains. There was also a notebook with a list of 25 names and addresses, although it did not include the names of Andrecy, Palillo, and Wallace. And then Sheriff O'Donnell called the press in for an announcement. He said he had a signed confession. Dolizal had admitted to the murders. An editorial in the Plain dealer acted as if a game had been played in one, saying the sheriff had snatched victory from Cleveland police in the matter. In Cleveland, Detective Merillot was livid, and no doubt the entire department was embarrassed. Ness, who was famous for his neutrality, he congratulated the sheriff and said he hoped he had the right man. But then the case against Dolezal began to unravel, Dates and times weren't matching up. Details in Dolezal's confession didn't match up with the coroner's reports. And those who heard Dolezal's confession said there was something odd about it. He would ramble incoherently and then suddenly offer bits of detailed precision as if he had been coached. Eventually, Dolezal recanted his confession and insisted he had been beaten into giving it. The sheriff's office denied the abuse but backed off all the murders but one, saying they still intended to try Dolazal in the Palillo case. Coroner Gerber commented, that was ridiculous, saying whoever murdered Flo Palillo had murdered all the victims. And then an unexpected ending to this chapter. Dolazal was found hanging in his Cuyahoga County jail cell, a noose fashioned from strips of cleaning rags. But the hook he was hanging from was only 5 feet 7 inches off the floor. Dolezal was 5 foot 8 inches. Yeah,
1: that doesn't matter.
2: His feet were on the floor. The coroner's autopsy revealed other suspicious things, like the fact that it would have taken him 12 to 15 minutes to asphyxiate, dangling the way he had. But the deputy said he was alone no longer than 3 minutes. And then a bigger bombshell? He had six broken ribs, at least a month old. Yeah, that was a period of which he was in custody. An inquest was held. Nothing came of it. And from what I can tell, nobody thinks Dolezal was the killer. But Steve, Elliot Ness had another suspect in mind.
1: Okay, so this is the first time we're getting Elliot Ness to actually say he has a suspect.
2: It is, and actually, we are not even going to know this until modern times. Yeah, it appears there was a time he thought he had his mad butcher. Listen to this. A book in 2001, written by James Battle, an English professor and crime author, said Ness alluded to a favorite suspect when talking to his biographer decades earlier. Unbeknownst to anybody, Ness said he had picked up the man in 1938 interrogated him, gave him a lie detector test, which he failed, but then had to release him because he had no evidence. Nobody knew who the secret suspect was, but Battle said after 18 years of investigating the case himself, he came to agree with others who believed it to be Dr. Francis E. Sweeney. Born in 1884, Sweeney was a veteran of World War I, where he served in a medical unit. They conducted amputations. Back in 1938, after the last two murders, Ness had found and taken Sweeney to the old Cleveland Hotel, which is now the Renaissance, and held him there for at least 10 days, partly because they had to spend the first three days drying him out. Ness called in a favor and got the inventor of the modern day polygraph, a man named Leonard Keeler, to come to Cleveland in secret and administer the test himself. Reportedly, Keeler told Ness he had his man. Battle, the author, and oh boy, I am sorry if I'm pronouncing this guy's name. The author, do you think that's Battle or Badal?
1: I think it's Badal. All
2: right. My apologies to the author, I'm not sure. But he found a few other details about Sweeney. He found a 1933 probate court record where his wife asked that he be confined and evaluated, saying his alcoholism had made him abusive and that he would disappear for days at a time. And then there was the story of a vagrant named Emil Fronic who claimed he was walking up Broadway Avenue looking for food when a doctor offered to feed him. The doctor took him to his office and gave him something to eat, but the man started feeling woozy. Fearing he'd been drugged, the itinerant ran from the doctor's office, made it to a boxcar, and fell asleep for three days. When he recovered, he hightailed it out of Cleveland, saying Chicago was a safer place to be. Now, none of this was made public back in the day, but apparently, back when it happened, Detective Peter Merilow heard the story and found the man in Chicago, even brought him back to Cleveland to try and locate the office where this all happened. They couldn't find anything that looked like a doctor's office on Broadway. But decades later, the author, Bedow, learned that Dr. Francis Sweeney had an office on Broadway Avenue, Though it was in the back of a house, nobody would have mistaken the house for a doctor's office from the front, he said. In the end, Ness knew there wasn't enough to prosecute Sweeney. It also didn't help that the good doctor was a first cousin of Congressman Martin Sweeney, who was a political opponent of Ness and who used to taunt Ness about failing to catch the killer. A week after Ness interrogated Dr. Sweeney in 1938, the doctor checked himself in to the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors Home. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Bedal also learned that from his hospital confinement, Sweeney sent threatening letters to Ness and his family well into the 1950s, signing one postcard, Your Paranoidal Nemesis. Sweeney died in a Dayton Veterans Hospital in 1964. Notably, while there have been numerous books and films on this story, there are no longer any official police records on this case. They've all been lost or destroyed.
1: It's amazing the, how many things serial killers have in common. Uh, like I said, it's on, you know, kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer a little bit with the torso and stuff. But just the fact that he was killing the less dead, you know, people who wouldn't be missed. Right. Who, who, you know, doesn't even have a name. I mean, you, you can kind of link that with uh, the Green River Killer. Uh, he he was uh, Ridgeway And um, uh, Robert Pickton would do stuff like that, with, you know, the less dead. And also Robert Hanson. And I, I bring them all up because they all killed... Like Robert Hansen, he would kill strippers who were new in Alaska, not the ones that you know were there for a while and but anybody, just yeah, yeah, because nobody would miss them and all three of them had something in common they both had they all had very low i q s but they knew enough to kill the less dead, so I kind of lean to a suspect that 's not a doctor in this case all right well let 's see what our armchair detective has to say.
2: tonight we'd like to welcome Michael Bonanno of Broadview Heights. Hi, Michael.
3: Hey, Paula. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
3: Well, uh, you know about the Too Late for Autographs uh, thing I do, right, on Facebook?
2: Yeah. You know, we've posted on our social media about your awesome page. You've been doing that for five years now, right?
3: Yeah, it was five years last month, exactly, right.
2: And you take pictures of yourself with gravestones of people who have reached celebrity status for one reason or another in Ohio, and you post them and share little stories about them.
3: That's that's correct, exactly. It's, uh about uh, two a week I do, and then sometimes I repeat some old ones that people may have not seen that joined the group later on. Oh, know, yes, especially yeah. since
2: you've been doing it for five years.
3: Exactly. So, so yeah.
2: find it on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, folks, it's Too Late for Autographs, Ohio, and Correct. ask to join, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, you clearly have widespread knowledge of famous people and events in Ohio, and I've got to believe that you already knew quite a bit about the Mad Butcher. Am I right?
3: Yeah, I studied it when I was, uh, I was researching a lot of it when I was uh, doing Elliot Ness stuff for my page on oh, Facebook. Yeah. So yeah.
2: Because Elliot Ness is uh, buried up in Cleveland. Oh, his ashes are scattered in Cleveland, Correct. right?
3: Correct. Yeah, they, ha- yeah they, have a little, they have a memorial marker for him, too, as well. But yeah.
2: Yeah. So did anything about this story surprise you?
3: There were surprises as far as um, the 11th victim, the last uh, female that was found. Yes. The Are- one outside of L.A. Ness's office, pretty much. Yes. Uh, she was embalmed. That was, they considered her not a real torso victim. So,
2: um, I don't know if you... I did not yeah. come across that.
3: Yeah, she was embalmed, and which made me think, I don't know, if, again, if you, when you get into this, but uh, there was a theory that Sweeney, he was doing this stuff next to a funeral home. And so that would make sense if, you know, maybe he sold the body from the funeral home and, and you know, an embalmed body, somebody that wasn't claimed, and cut him up, cut her up, excuse me, yeah, female.
2: Oh, for him. So that would not have been his typical MO, though, right? I no, mean, yeah, they thought was... that he actually killed his other victims, but this one he might have just been experimenting with an already dead victim.
3: Well, they're thinking that the theory that I came across when I was researching it was at this point, that's what he was having him followed, having Sweeney's followed. And uh, so Sweeney just decided to cut up a dead body uh, and kind of tease him with it or I'm not sure what the motive was behind it. Right. But Yeah, but he was it was embalmed and uh, it's pretty crazy because if he was doing this, if his laboratory was next to a, uh, a funeral home, that would explain the, you know, and then also, there was, uh, this body too was also uh, wrapped in butcher paper. Right. And according to where he was practicing uh, his doctor practice, there was a delicatessen in the front of the building. So I'm thinking maybe there was some butcher paper there, you know, possibly. I don't know.
2: Uh, just that, more evidence that seems yeah. to point in his direction. What do you think in general about Sweeney?
3: Yeah, he's the easiest guy to, to blame it on. You know, every, everything I think that has been found out about him, uh, everything points to his guilt. I don't think anything points away. I guess Ness had um, how he had the untouchables in, in Chicago. He had a team of six guys in Cleveland called the unknowns. And they were the ones who were working on this case. And I guess part of the theory is they were the ones who discovered Sweeney to be a, a viable suspect. These guys were called the six unknowns and they were low level criminals. One was a marijuana dealer dealer. And uh, I guess they were working for Ness and trying to you know work on this case and, and you know, just kind of look around and try to find somebody. And I guess that they're the ones who came up with Sweeney originally.
2: So sort of like confidential informants.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. It sounds to me like a miniseries or another television show.
3: <laughs> you know what? I, I heard they were supposed to make a movie out of this and nothing ever came of it, though. But I, I guess you know, the idea keeps getting tossed around every now and again. Maybe they'll do it eventually.
2: Now, it sounds like as a community, we didn't even know Sweeney's name until long after Elliot Ness was dead, right?
3: Correct. From, from what I read, there was a woman. and uh, She just passed away, actually, in January. She's the one who discovered Sweeney's name all on her own. Uh, her name was Marilyn Bardsley or something, oh, I believe.
2: Let's give her and credit. She, yeah.
3: She started this, and the first story she did was on the uh, butcher of, of Kingsbury Run.
2: And so, then this uh, author in 2001 took that and kind of ran with it.
3: Yeah, James, uh, James Bedell, Jesse James, I believe it is, Badal.
2: Yeah, so that was really interesting that that came to light so late in this story. Although it sounds like early on, they knew that Ness had his eye on someone. They just didn't know the name of the person.
3: And so there were people there at the hotel that confirmed this with this Marilyn years later. Um, they, they swore to Ness that they would never tell who the suspect was, but she kind of stumbled on her. So I actually, I read how she stumbled upon it. She was, she was in a bar one night and, uh, somebody came up to her and said, you want to, you want to stop looking at this Sweeney? I don't know how she f- originally found out about it, but, uh, he was, he goes people, you know, because he was related really to Martin Sweeney. The politician. The congressman, yes. Yeah, so somebody came up to her and started giving her a hard time at this bar. Just, you know, uh, you don't want to investigate this any further. Sweeney, you know, Sweeney knows people. And so then she discovered the name from there. Uh, (gasps) So there was a connection there somehow that she figured it out that it was a Dr. Sweeney. Good for her. And then she asked people who knew Ness who were still alive in the 70s. I think this is when it came out. And uh, they confirmed that it was him.
2: Yeah, I, I was really impressed just by the little clue that they found out he had this office on Broadway. Yeah, And here they had this testimony from this hobo yeah, who had got, uh, Cleveland had scared him so much he ran to Chicago and yeah, they had exactly. to drag him back. And then it turns out, yes, yeah, Sweeney did have an office on that street.
3: Yeah, Fronick, I think was his last name. What and did you think again, about his story? Yeah, uh, You know, that was pretty, um, you know, considering that, the way Bedell says it in his book is that he was looking for food, and he was walking down Broadway in Cleveland, and he saw a delicatessen, and he wandered around back to try to find food, maybe in the garbage cans, because this is the Depression, and you know right. everybody's hungry, so that's where he stumbled across the doctor's office, because that was in the back of the building, and the upper part of it was a uh, it was a home. It was actually originally a, a house, and this, he was in practice with six other doctors. Sweeney was. So they converted the bottom part of it to a doctor's office, and the top part was still a house where people could stay and live in. And I guess it was believed that Sweeney might have been staying there for a while after he divorced his wife, after his wife kicked him out. Um, so if this Frolic wandered around back and was looking for food, then it's, you know, the theory is that Sweeney invited him in, gave him some food, started drugging him, and Frolic just ran away. And he said, he, I guess he slept in a, a boxcar for three days or something. That's how drugged up he was. And then that's when he went to Chicago.
2: What do you yes. think about this poor Dolezal?
3: Man, that, that guy got a uh, uh, bum rap, didn't he? I mean, talk about trying to find a scapegoat. Oh, my uh, God.
2: And yeah, it all sounds was, like it was just a part of this game between the sheriff's department and the, the city department.
3: Yeah. Again, I had, I, my research said that uh, Detective Merlot, the guy who was on the case, um, had actually interviewed him earlier before the sheriff was on to him, and he discarded him as a, as a suspect. And then the sheriff, you know, kind of got interested in him. And then I guess, you know, the, the police department actually went back down there again to reinvestigate him. And, you know, and then the sheriff arrested him, obviously, and threw him in jail. And then they're going to try him for uh, one of the murders.
2: I think of this whole period with the entire community wondering when new body parts are going to show up. I think part of the horror of this story is that it could touch so many lives because, there could be an arm over here and a torso over there. It's like a scavenger hunt, and yeah. you have no idea. You're going to be walking around one day and find a body part, and you're like, here we go again.
3: It, that, it could, they could have been anywhere. Like I think you said in the, in the podcast, too, that the, the Lady of the Lake was found in one area, and then her, the rest of her was found way up in Perry, Ohio, which is way up from Cleveland. Who, who knows what you're going to find just walking down the street?
2: Now, you sent me a picture recently of those postcards. Where did you find those?
3: Those are at the uh, Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland, uh, at yeah. University Circle, actually. The art museum's down there, and the, all these museums are you know, down in University Circle in Cleveland.
2: And are um, those on a display?
3: Yeah, they are in a drawer. You open up the drawer, and then they're there, and you can take a picture of them. And, uh, they're, they're pretty creepy, they're very weird.
2: <laughs> Were those all postcards that Sweeney had sent to Ness?
3: yeah and then i heard yeah they were six, there were six postcards there sent to ness and i guess some to his family and then i also read that sweeney sent some to other detectives on the case but but he really targeted sweeney more than anybody wow. so there were there these were the six that survived among ness's papers these six postcards there was a one of the postcards was signed the american sweeney and i guess that's a reference to S- sweeney todd who was a fictional character who murdered people in England or something. Oh, yes. So, again, James Bedell in his book says that this is the closest Sweeney comes to admitting he's the Mad Butcher by signing it the American Sweeney with one of the postcards.
2: So, Michael, when they finally got Elliot Ness to have more of a hands-on role in this, they started holding these torso clinics. Yeah. That was kind of interesting.
3: One, they were one of the first of its kind, and you today you would call it FBI profiling, and this is like one of the first examples of it. You know, and they just they invited uh, all kinds of people: um, detectives that were on the case, doctors, anatomists. For uh, from Case Western were there a uh, bunch of bunch of people were there, and they just you know what are we looking for? And they came up with you know well we're probably looking. They couldn't they wouldn't say doctor at that time, from what I read. They're saying oh it's a butcher or somebody who just knows anatomy and. You know, I guess they couldn't bring themselves to blame it on one of their own. So I think it was Gerber later who uh, who replaced A.J. Pierce as the uh, uh, coroner, county coroner. He said it might be a doctor, to look for a doctor that might be uh, with alcohol dependency or, you know, past convictions or sex crimes or something like that.
2: I do remember reading there was a point where they started saying, we think maybe this is somebody who is bringing these people home with him, yeah. feeding them, Clothing right. them and then killing them. And maybe that right. came from the torso clinic.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I believe that would probably be very true that they just kind of, you know, like you said, sat down and just thought it out. And that would be the logical way to go about whoever was doing this, how they would do it.
2: And then after they found the survivor, the guy who had ran away, it seemed to really agree with that theory because he yeah. had been taken in by a doctor and fed and then drugged.
3: Right. Yep it fits in exactly i think it's especially if that delicatessen was around the corner and the funeral home was supposed to be right next door that would allow him you know access to 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 dispose of the blood you know
2: i'm glad you brought up those other buildings because i didn't realize that you've really helped create the image of that section of broadway so you've got the Funeral home, right there. You've got the delicatessen with the butcher paper there. You've got the doctor's office that's upstairs and in the back, so it's not going to be obvious from the front, which is why they had trouble finding it with yeah. email yeah. when they brought him back. So you've really helped create the picture of, of that little section there.
3: I, I guess the it was Rosh Funeral Home was the name of it, and they also owned another building for a little bit down the street where it was more of a mortuary, and that's where they brought un- unclaimed bodies. And I, if it was Sweeney who did this, he could have walked from the funeral home to the mortuary back and forth. You know, I guess he had access. He, he made arrangements with these funeral owners to practice what they call he called practice surgery in these on unclaimed bodies is what I read. I don't know how if this, this is just a theory, I guess, that if it was Sweeney, he was next to this funeral home. And then there was a mortuary that was owned by the same funeral company just down the street. And he had access to both buildings. So I mean, that would explain a lot.
2: Are we thinking that that was his laboratory for these living victims? Are we thinking that he maybe drugged them and carried them, them in there? And the yeah, mortuary yeah. people would probably think, oh, he's bringing in another body. But
3: yeah, yeah, I guess of- I mean, eventually, the the you think they would catch on to something's going on, right? So he, I mean, and maybe that's why he started murdering people, like you said, on the spot, where, you know, in the you know where the blood. There was one murder or two murders where the blood was just so much that. They figured he murdered him right on the spot right there.
2: Yeah, changes and, and maybe what, a little bit.
3: Yeah, because maybe, you know, obviously he didn't have access to the, the funeral home anymore, or the mortuary. So he started doing that.
2: Michael, thank you so much. You've contributed so much new information to this. I thought after uh, all the reading that I've done, I'd known everything. And wow, you brought a lot of new stuff to it. Thanks. Bob.
3: Well, no, thank you. It was great to be here. I had a great time. And, and thanks for asking me.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more, on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
2: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Casey Redman didn't think there were enough songs out there about Ohio, so he wrote his own. Ohio song is a fun trip through the Buckeye State, playing on our heartstrings as he sweeps through the places near and dear to our hearts. Casey wrote, sang, and played the acoustic guitar and harmonica on this song. Nick Cholera played bass, and Todd Paris played drums. Casey lives in Logan, but he grew up in Cleveland, and his music runs the gamut from folk to country to rock and roll, and his tunes touch on everything from beer and beaches and werewolves to Catholic schools, gnomes, and the FBI. <laughs> Check out his website, cmsr11.weebly.com. So that's CMSR and then the number 11. There you'll find links to a podcast he does on tunes from his personal collection and his blog where he writes about music news and reviews. Ohio Song and the rest of his music can be found wherever you like to stream, download, or buy your music, including Amazon, Apple, and Spotify.
1: At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of Casey Redman's tune, Ohio Song. Here's the rest of it. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
0: From Marietta on the river, to the ships in Maumee Bay. From the flatlands near defiance, to the depths of old man's cave. Between Union City and Youngstown, somewhere on the main, singing somewhere at Ohio. From the river to the lake From the great north coast of Cleveland To the Queen City River shore Late high street in Columbus Heard the mighty Buckeyes roar I spent Halloween in Athens For love and hunger's sake Singing somewhere in Ohio From the river to the lake New streets, Fill and Buckeye Lake, of have sang for drums. For sailors in Port Clinton, I've saying for my lunch. Through the hocking hills of Logan, I've played for love and hunger's sake. Singing somewhere in Ohio from the river.